Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. This is the last uh, part of uh, the book of James, and so we're going to go on to some other topics after Easter that I think you'll be very interested in when we get there. But uh, Sean, you know, he preached uh, most of this at this uh, series, as he ought to. He's the senior pastor. He's doing a great job. But he only left me two verses. I'm not sure how to take that. I didn't know if, like, uh, he just got to, you know, toward the end and he thought, I don't want to preach those two. I'll give them to Steve. Or if he thought they were great and he was giving me an award. I just didn't know. But two verses is it. So I got to make a whole message out of two verses. So you pray for me. Uh, And to introduce the topic before we read the scriptures, Today is about spiritual reclamation or reclaiming the people who have been a part of a church family but have wandered away. And, you know, they were here, and then you ask someday, like, hey, where'd Joe go? I don't know. I haven't seen Joe in a while. Or where'd Susie? What happened to Susie? I don't know. She hadn't been here in a while. You know, how, how, does, how does a church supposed to take care of those who wander away? And I found kind of, a, kind of a, one of the secrets and here, here I found a video, that, or not a video, a picture that shows it. Can you show the picture up there? Nope, try again. Oh, come on. There it is. You know what I'm talking about, right? You put two socks in the dryer, and you're folding them, and there's only one. And you know you put two in there, and then you do it again and do it again. Well, we've discovered somebody's eating your socks. And what we're going to find out today is there is a devil who is intent on eating your soul and stealing away the souls uh, and the lives of the people who are a part of our church family. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you're able, in honor of God's word, I'd like you to stand. Ron's going to read because he's, he's like one of my favorite readers. And he's going to put some, uh, some pizzazz on our two verses. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone shall bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, and you may be seated. So what I did is I looked at this and I I sort of bombarded this uh, passage with uh, two questions, or four questions, I should say, is to organize my thoughts. Now, if you're in a growth group or a small group that studies the, but through the discussion questions, I added a whole bunch of other passages from the Bible so that you can study this topic more deeply in your growth group. And they're in the discussion questions. But uh, we'll just get started. So who should we seek to reclaim spiritually? Here's James' answer in uh, verse 19a. He says, my brothers and sisters. Now, that, that tells you everything you need to know right there. He is speaking to the church family. It was common in that day to call uh, church members brothers and sisters. In fact, the church I was raised in, in Das Palace, uh, actually used that terminology with affection. You know, we had, you know, Brother Lawrence and Brother this and sister so-and-so. And, and, they, they, and I thought it was kind of quaint but kind of, kind of warm as well. Well, so what I want you to see is that James is addressing this whole question of, you know, who do you want to reclaim? to the church, and here's, here's the answer to the question. If one of you, if one of you who are members of the church, if one of you who are believers in Christ, 
should wander from the truth. And then he's going to go on with the next question, second half of the verse, and, and answer about, like, what, what do we do about that? So who should we focus on? We should focus on members of our own church family that have wandered away from the truth. And all of us are responsible. We're all in this together. Now, here's why. He uses this phrase, wander from the truth. I think all of us have rhythms in our life where our hearts wander. If you're a Christian, there are times when you're more intense and you're focused on God, and there are times when your hearts kind of wander. It's kind of like the ocean. You know, the waves come in, and you're hot, and the waves go out, and it's, or, or kind of slack. And there are times when our faith is slack. During those slack times, if you're not careful, you can be drawn away and actually create a pattern of being uh, pushed away or stay away from the habits that would feed your soul and keep you connected to Christ. And this is what James wants us to pay attention to. Now, here's, uh, I wanted to just kind of tease out this idea of wandering. So I got a quote from Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors. He says this, Wandering from the way means when a person's error has affected his way of life. It says in Galatians 6.1, so here's one of the countermanding scriptures that would help fill this out. When you see a person caught or trapped in a trespass. So the point is when you see a pattern of coldness, not just an instance of coldness, but a pattern of coldness, a pattern of repetition, a pattern of spiritual indifference. Wandering means this person is moving away from God. He's moving away from fellowship. He's moving away from other Christians. That's what wandering is, wandering from the truth. And we are responsible for each other. Now, I just want to say this about that before we get into kind of the deeper elements of this. I have always been greatly concerned. In fact, it's one of the major burdens of my heart that each of you get involved in a small group within our church's fellowship because that's where honest care happens. That's where the one another verses in the New Testament, there's only, I think there's 53, 56 different one another commandments in, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And they focus on how Christians are to treat one another, how do we do to do each other, which means sometimes people love you, sometimes you are the one giving the love. But in a church this size, we have about 1,600 that uh, worship here on a regular basis, probably have about another 2,500 people that call this their church home, and they come on sporadic weeks or as their uh, you know, lifestyle allows. And so in a church this size, no one pastor can know everybody or know how you're doing. And here's what I know. I know you are exposed to all sorts of um, just lack of care if you're not involved in a small group. Uh, Pastor Dave Love is just one of the great saints in our, in our church, and if anybody gets close to knowing everybody's name, it's him. But from time to time, he will share that somebody has called uh, to, to complain that uh, they were, you know, they were in the hospital or somebody almost died or something horrible happened, and you know, nobody at that church came down and, and helped us or reached out to us. And Dave's tried to explain to them, we didn't know. If we'd have known, we would have been there. Dave responds personally when he's in town to, to all those kinds of things. But here's what we've discovered, is that if you're in a small group, and this happened as, as recently as last night. Uh, last night, yesterday, we got the word that one of our members, a couple that's involved in a very healthy small group, uh, she got some, some tests that looked like she was uh, facing stage four cancer. And so she was in yesterday while we were doing church services last night, getting tests done to, to see how that was all going to come out. Here's what I know. 
When you're in a healthy small group like that couple is, if a pastor does get there even belatedly, there's already a room full of people giving care and prayer and taking care of everything. It is, it's just, it's so beautiful to see. Now, here's my fear. My fear is that for you, you won't have that if you're not in a small group. And so I, I, I need to say something. I want to say it gently, but I, I, need, it, I need to say it carefully but, but clearly. If you're not in a small group, and then some tragedy befalls you and you feel like your church let you down, not to be, not, I, I'm not trying to be uh, mean or ugly. It's your fault because you are the church. You don't attend church. It's not like, well, I go to that church. Well, so what? I'm glad you do. But I, you need to be in a church where you're actually giving and receiving love and giving and receiving teaching and giving care and putting up with other people that are imperfect while they're on the way. When you are in that, I relax because I know that when you have those wandering phases in your life, you have others who will care for you because you've invested in them. Another way to say this, I know you wouldn't believe in it, but many of us behave as if it's true. We don't believe in spiritual welfare. That is to say, I attend church for what I can get out of it. Gimme, 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 gimme. The, the scriptures teach that we're all participants. Not only are we be the recipients it, when we wander away, of God's love through the people who know us and who are in the faith, but we are also to be the givers of God's love to those people that we know when, we're, when they're wandering from the faith. So I just, I just want to encourage you, not, not because anybody's a terrible person, but because we all need it, because we all do have those rhythms of wandering. So number two, who should attempt the reclamation? Who should attempt to reach out to others? And James asks, answers this very clearly again. He says, my brothers and sisters, someone should bring that person back. Who's the someone? Well, it's somebody among the brothers and sisters who are here. That's why when you're in a small group, I know there's someone who will care for you. It'll be the first call you make because you're calling a friend now, not just a, a pastor that maybe you've never really had much time with personally. And this, this makes so much difference. Now, I want to I talk to you for, for a second about adding in some other scriptures. Uh, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul went into Corinth, and Corinth was kind of like Las Vegas. Uh, at least it was th thought of as kind of a sin city. In fact, if you wanted to describe somebody as having low morals or just careless life, uh, you would say they were a Corinthian, a Corinthianizer. Uh, you, they use the word Corinth, and that's like the kind of person they are, kind of, kind of like we would say of sin city or you know what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, that same, same kind of idea. So when Paul started a church in Corinth and God's Spirit began to move and many got saved, here's what happened. Lots of broken, sinful, messed up people got saved and came into the church. Well, you know what happens when lots of broken, messed up people join your church? <laughs> you get a broken, messed up church full of people. That's what you get. And so it requires extra energy to sort of handle all the problems that they bring with them. In other words, the people at Corinth didn't live in North Clovis. I thought I'd get more out of that. Hmm. I'm going to let it go. We'll move on. So here's one of the examples of what was happening in Corinth. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to read you the same situation in 2 Corinthians, which is a few years later. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even... Uh, that does not occur even among pagans. Even the pagans know this is messed up. 
A man has his father's wife. Oh, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now, when we read that, I think we, uh, we, we sort of, at least me, when I first read that, it, it, a part of me cringes because I think the church in America already sort of has the, the reputation of being judgmental. And to some degree, uh, uh, I think, to be honest, we've got to admit, we've earned it. The church in America has often been judgmental. Now, to take you back into the context of what we're looking at with James, James says you take care of your own. It's not that you try to correct everything that's going on out in the world. In fact, uh, uh, Paul says it this way. He says, we're to judge those inside the church. We're not to judge those outside the church. God will take care of those people. You invite those by the gospel, and hopefully they can see the light and come into. But, but judging people who are far away, that's not the point here. Now, what's happening here is you've got somebody who's been saved, we assume, at least he, he is claiming there's Paul. Uh, Paul's speaking as if he's been a member of this church, and now he's living in this gross sin, and Paul says you should have grieved and put him out of the fellowship. Now, there it goes, it goes man, that feels like kind of like judgmentalism or something. And I, I, I want to say this. This is very important. When you read the Bible, notice what it doesn't say as much as what it does say. What it doesn't say in this passage is that th this guy's living with his father's wife, you should get so angry and righteously indignant that you just cast this guy out. It's not what it says. Here's what it says. Now listen very carefully. You should be grieved, heartbroken, and with tears you should respond to this situation and not just let it go on. Now why would that be important? Because in the family of God, you don't want younger believers coming to believe that a certain behaviors are acceptable. In fact, let, let me just sort of dumb it down this way. We all know that one of the keys to making it through the teenagers successfully is the, the friends that your teenagers have. Because their friends will largely determine the directions of their life. In fact, the Bible says it this way. Bad company ruins good morals. So all we're trying to do here is protect the, the weaker people in our congregation from having undue influence of people thinking that we approve that. Now, let me tell you how Clovis Hills has, uh, has always applied this. Because, frankly, Clovis Hills has been a church for broken people. If you're broken and messed up, we are the church for you. Perfect people don't do as well here because they expect us to be perfect. And that's not what we're about. We're about trying to be redemptive, not just legalistically uh, pushing people around. So here's what we've done. We want all the broken people to come. We invite them all to come to church, and they're welcome no matter where they're at on the scale. If they'd like to pursue Christ, this ought to be a safe place to do it. And when they get in a growth group, we want them to continue in the growth group. We draw the line when someone takes a leadership level in a growth group or a ministry team. If we discover there's an aberrant behavior in their lifestyle, we don't just kick them out. We come alongside them and say, you know, we need you to step down as leadership right now with what's going on in your life. And we don't want, you don't have to go away. You, you can continue fellowshipping with the church and continue fellowshipping with the small group, but not leading. Work on your own life or work on your own marriage or work on your own habits or work on the things that, that are destroying your life because we care about you too much to let you have the illusion that you're walking with Christ while behaving in ways that are really going to mess you up. And that is really the heart, I think, of the gospel. 
So if you're going to try to, you know, respond to somebody, or as it says here, push them out of the fellowship, you ought to do it with brokenheartedness because what you really are looking for is a repentant attitude for them to come back under the authority of Christ, not under my authority, but just to begin to behave correctly. And somewhere you've got to draw that line or else there will be people in your life that will lead you or others that you care about down kind of a, a road that, to destruction that could really damage them spiritually. So ha having, having said that, let me read this one quote I, I got from uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, There are very few churches, meaning today, there are very few churches today that are vital enough to even need to read First and Second Corinthians. You know what he's saying? He's saying there aren't very many churches actually reaching and evangelizing and converting people from really broken backgrounds. Let me assure you, this church really excels at reaching broken people. In fact, there's a room full of them right now. Some of you have been dragging your broken family with you for quite some time, and they're kind of filling a row right now. And you know that at Clovis Hills, you feel right at home. That's how it ought to be. So we are a vital church, and we are reaching people. In fact, I got a comment on the, the, the Jesus is, is life. You know, our pastor, which I just love, he's doing such a great job. Uh, he wanted to have a name for everybody that, because he wants first-time decisions for Christ, not, not just rededications. So we've been asking for names, not only of the people who make decisions here, but in all of the different churches that we're starting and there's like three of those, or the mission trips that we take where we're working with, with churches that we've started, uh, like in the Philippines or in Africa. And here, here's where we are right now. Just since, uh, uh, I don't know when they started counting. Was it first of the year? Uh, that's not right. Must have been the first of, la of uh, the school year. Say it again. 2017. Almost 1,000 converts by name because of what this church has done. Just to give you an idea, the next time Pastor Scott goes back to Africa, they will start, we will start our first church in a prison. We're just going to go straight to where the broken people are. So I want you to feel that it, it's not about pushing people away, it's about being redemptive. Now, but I want you to hear the rest of the story. In 1 Corinthians, they, Paul says, you can't just let this guy just hang out and, you know, behave like he's, you know, you, you got to go with him with broken heart. And if he won't listen, then you got to, you know, indicate to him this isn't good. We can't let, ever, can't let the younger Christians think that you're the model of Christian behavior. So he writes back in 2 Corinthians. This is a few, um, I don't know if it's a, a couple of years or a couple of, you know, several months later. He says, the punishment inflicted on him, speaking of the same guy, by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. What? You expect me to forgive and comfort a guy who is actually living adultery, stealing his, I don't know if his mother or stepmother, what the heck? This just sounds crazy. But this is the redemptive spirit that's actually in the Bible. You reach out redemptively. You try to draw back in, and you forgive. You don't just hold grudges or say they messed up once and you throw them away. And it goes on. So that uh, he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, I urge you, therefore, and here he goes again, to reaffirm your love for him. 
Did you know that for broken people, what the Bible, the New Testament, the gospel says we ought to do with them? We ought to, it, with heartbreak, uh, bring their uh, aberrant behavior that's going to be destructive to them and to the people that live around them. And then, then we're to forgive when we see any evidence of change and to comfort them and to reaffirm our love for them. They sh nobody should ever go away thinking that we don't like them or that we're angry with them. We, we should re it's a redemptive act. It's bringing them back in. And I can't tell you, it's been very, very uh, positive seeing the response of the people at Clovis Hills as we've had leader after leader where we've had step down for a time and they've been able to work their way back up into spiritual health and get back in the ministry again. Volunteers I'm talking about uh, right here. So number three, what causes believers to wander from the truth? Well, here's what James says in verse 20. He says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner, and here's the key, from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So let, let's think about that for a minute. When we see this phrase, uh, save them from death, you know, the, the question comes up almost automatically with many people. What, you mean you could be a Christian and then you could lose your salvation? I mean, what, what's going on here? I thought this was a spiritual reclamation thing, things done in the family of God. And it is. So the whole thing of, our, you know, if you're saved, can you get lost again? That's a, really, you ought to think through that very carefully. And so what I did is on your notes, at the bottom of the notes, you'll see a resource that I'm recommending to you. It's a book by Charles Stanley that you can get from Amazon or anywhere, I'm sure. It's called Eternal Security. It's readable, it's biblical, and he will anchor you into seeing all the different arguments that go on around this topic, and it will anchor you in a very strong way, and I recommend that. But just since we're here, I'll give you the short answer. The short answer for today is, no, you can't lose your salvation. In fact, rather than you hear me say it, let, let me hear, uh, I want to read to you what Charles Spurgeon said. He was probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. Uh, and here's his words. Charles Spurgeon says, a real Christian can't lose salvation. A real Christian is like a person who's on a boat on their way to heaven. A Christian cannot fall off the boat, but he can fall on the boat and break all your bones and spend the whole trip in the infirmary. You know that thing where you see your little uh, six-year-old, you know, building a little ramp because the kids in the neighborhood are, and zooming over the top and losing control, and you watch it crash, and you go, oh, that's got to hurt. Do you realize pastors see this all the time? This is just like how it is. You know, you watch some guy just wandering away and flirting. Uh, I, I've had people who, for just out of sheer boredom, because they're not following the Lord, they get bored, they're going to try something else. I've had people who are seduced by others. I had one uh, lady who came into my office and just confessed because she wanted to get it right. She says, I'm not making excuses for it because I had an affair because I wanted to know what it felt like to have an affair. I felt like I was missing out. Really? That's got to leave a mark. Not just on her, but on her family, on her husband. I mean, it, you, know, you, you, try to get a, you try to help people from being hurt like this. It's not that you, if you're forgiven, you can't make it to heaven. Once you're forgiven by Christ, Christ gives you eternal life, not part-time life with, you know, kind of a hope you get bail if you get too messed up. And we'll talk more about that in, in a minute. It's eternal life. But, um, but you can mess this life up, and you can mess the people in this life who are around you up. 
I can't tell you how many people on one of those times when their faith kind of is wave, wave going out uh, and um, they've, they've got involved in, a, in an affair and they've blown up the marriage, their children pay a debt for the rest of their life. Uh, I, you know, I've talked to families where the, the, the husband has gone on, he's remarried, he's had other kids, and some of the money, a major part of the money he's trying to, to, to now that he's walking right, he's got to send it back to the first set of kids. And it just, it affects everywhere. So I just want you to understand, it's not that we're like against sin. God is against sin because it hurts people. It leaves a mark. And uh, to be restored is to, you know, you, you really, you, you regain a lot. Now I want you to, I want to go on because I want to ask you this question of what causes believers to wander. Now instead, I want to go back and I want to reread this passage that I just read you in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him. Why? So that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now remember that. One of the reasons that we should reach out in love to people who have fallen away from the Lord or done something poorly is that when you get them restored, you forgive and comfort so that they're not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Hang on to that idea. I'll express it more in a minute. Then he says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him in order that, there it is again, here's the second reason you shouldn't, that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, here's what I believe. I believe in America, generally, we talk about Satan, but nobody takes him seriously. Even in churches, we often do not take him seriously enough, and, and we don't we believe as a church staff and as a church that we believe that the devil is real and he's active, but we don't want you looking under every bush for one. But I do want you to not be unaware of his schemes. Now, what would be a scheme of the devil? Now, let me ex explain how the scheme of the devil fits exactly with what he said about being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, let me, I want to explain that this is going to be slightly oversimplified because I want us to get the big idea here. There are probably nuances that I'm going to miss, but I think it can help if you get the big idea. There are, uh, broadly speaking, kind of two responses to, to painful uh, situations. One is if somebody, that, some, some of us are high responsibility people, and if we do something wrong, our own conscience beats the heck out of us. It just chews us up. That's the, the child you don't have to spank as much. You, you just a stern look really goes a long way. When these people grow up and in, in larger, if, if they're a Christian and they know better and they wander, what, what happens is the, the pain of the guilt of what they've done begins to dominate their heart and life. And it's an excessive sorrow, an excessive pain. And, and what, what happens is they feel so guilty that they don't feel uh, like they deserve to be able to go into the presence of God, and they think if the church family knew what I've done, they wouldn't like me, and so they pull away, and it creates kind of an isolationist, and it's when you're isolated that the devil has you. That's where the pattern of coldness comes from, is the devil's scheme to use a pain in your life, even the pain of a guilty conscience, to isolate you. By the way, you are aware that most of the mass shootings we're talking about are from young males who are isolated. They don't have the, fan, the friendship structures that others have that help people stay healthy. Now, another way that this happens is you've been hurt by someone in the church 
or you have a situation in life that befalls you, maybe the death of a loved one, uh, maybe some terrible trauma, and, and you think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm so hurt that I'm angry with God or I'm angry with the church member or I'm angry with the church for they didn't respond to me in, a, in the way I thought they should have. And one of the ways that, that and you have this deep pain, but rather than feel the pain of it, we blame and cloak ourselves in anger because anger protects us from the, 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 the pain we can't do anything about. And so they wind up being bitter, angry people. And what is bitter? They're angry at God and they're angry at the church and they think all churches are alike or all Christians are alike, none of which is, you know, it's, none of that's true, but that is a scheme of the devil. And what does it draw, put, put, put you? It isolates you, ostracizes you. You do it almost naturally. You pull yourself away. And then, then from that darkness can come all sorts of other kinds. And that's what God wants us to come against. Uh, you know, the key is you've got to overwhelm the darkness with the love of Christ. And let me read you one other verse on this topic. Uh, in uh, Romans 8, it says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. So whether you understand this or not, so if you're new to the faith, when you accept Christ into your life, one of the things that happen at your salvation is that God places His Holy Spirit in your life. So you do, in fact, receive a spirit, when, uh, the Holy Spirit, when you accept Christ. So He says, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. But by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, it's hard to get modern people to get this because Abba doesn't mean anything to us. But Abba is a tender term. It's like saying Daddy. It, it, it's the idea of deep intimacy where you let God in the deepest elements of your being and you feel the love and warmth and there's a precious gentleness to it that just it runs deep. And, and he says, uh, he goes on to say, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So what happens when a Christian sins, and especially when they get caught in one of those excessive sorrows and begin to pull away? You lose the assurance of your salvation because the whole warmth that was intended by the Holy Spirit being in your life gets kind of twisted, and, and, and all you can think is dark thoughts, like God couldn't forgive me, or you know nothing good could come of that. And... and that is, you know, regaining the assurance of your salvation is one of the things that people who wander from the faith. Because what happens is, eventually, if you live out here in the coldness long enough, you sort of wonder, well, was I ever saved? Or you start wondering, is there really a God? Or, or is this all just a bunch of hooey-balooey? And the longer you live outside in the darkness, the more those kind of things get a hold on you. And that's exactly what God is calling us through James to, to address so I would ask this question. How can we have assurance of salvation? How can we have assurance of salvation? I want to read uh, a verse that I feel, was, I feel like it was made famous by Billy Graham. I'm sure that's probably an overstatement. But here it is, John 3, 16. For God so, what's the word? Now get this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, I just got through reading an article this week where Billy Graham, when he did his first crusade and made him famous in Los Angeles in 1949, he was still on the, more on the edge of the hellfire and damnation preacher. 
from the background that he came from in North Carolina. But as that thing grew and he felt the weight of responsibility, he, he began to sense that God loves these sinners, doesn't hate them, or isn't like his big deal isn't judging them. His big deal is trying to rescue them. And to his credit, he began to look for and found and brought up to the surface the verses that were more about God's love reaching to us in spite of our failures or our, you know, the, the very fact that we're living in sin. And, and he really emphasized this. But he, even telling you that, let me try to tease this one out. Could you say this? For God so loved me. Can, could you say that? Let, let's try it. Let's try it out loud. Let's all of us say just that much. Ready? For God so loved me. How'd that feel? I'll just be honest. That makes me feel weird. I know God loves my mom. I believe that. that. I have no problem. But God loves me? Like, really? See, I'm not even sure Shirley loves me all the time. <laughs> You're with me here, right? It's uncomfortable to think that God can know all there is about me that's not what it ought to be. Hold it. And he still loves me? Holy smoke. Enough to send his son to die for my sins? That's overwhelming. That, my dear friends, is the gospel. And it goes on here. It says that whoever, and what's the word? Believes. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Believes, puts his trust in, puts his confidence in, transfers his hope for salvation from my good works to Christ's good works on the cross, dying for all of my bad works. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's the gospel. Now let me tell you in, in shorthand, because this is, this is the thing that gets so confusing. If you've known the Lord and then you wander away, and especially if you get caught up in one of those excessive sorrows of either over, you know, like too much guilt and it just drive, pulls you away, or you're angry at God or the church or who, you know, somebody, your mother, your dad, it just it continues to pull you away from the Lord. While all that's going on, we lose our sense that God could love us because we've lived out in the cold for so long. And then we tend to think this. You know, I just got, I got a handle. I got to get myself squared away. I, I got I to line myself out and get back on top of this bitterness. And then I'll come back to church. So I just want to say, stop, hold it right there. Is that how you got saved in the first place? Did anybody here get saved because they were living so good, God just says, man, I'm going to have to let you in? No, not a one of us. How did we get saved? By becoming aware of how bad we were and how much God loved us and is offering a solution for us. That he took the initiative to rescue us and redeem us. So we simply put our faith in him. And, and we sense the gospel of God's love for us, his forgiveness to us, and we took a new, and it just set us on a new path. Well, guess what? When you wander away and you get off in a ditch, don't change the rules. The way you get in relationship with God the first time when you're saved is the same way you get back in relationship when you've wandered off the path. You simply turn from your sins again, and you turn back to the gospel, and you embrace the love of God. You let him love on you. I'm telling you what, that will break down barriers that nothing else will. You know, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is that my mom had taken us to church for about uh, all four years of high school. 
And in my senior year, uh, summer of, I was getting ready to go off to college. And uh, I came into her bedroom just before church on a Sunday morning, just a couple of months before college started. And I was going to go away to Cal Poly at San Luis Obispo. And uh, I walked into the, to her room, uh, kind of caught her unexpectedly, and she's just, she's bawling uncontrollably. And it shook me up, shook me to the core. It's like, wow, dad died? What? What? And she says, no, 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 no. And I said, no, you got to tell me. And no, no. And, but I was, I mean, I was, I was keyed up. This is like, you don't cry like this, mom. So what, you've got to tell me. So she, she mops her face and she says, well, Steve, I was just getting ready for church and I was praying for you and you're getting ready to go to college. And I just thought, what if Steve never accepts Christ after he goes away to college? And it just broke my heart. Whoa. 17-year-olds have a lot of defenses but not against that much love. That's the gospel in action. Now, when I say this spiritual reclamation, how do we get people out of ditches? We have to exhibit that kind of gospel love to those who are in the ditch. That, that's how it works. And then we got to assure them they don't have to make all the changes. They just have to want to come back. And they can come back as freely as they left and, and accept the and just reconnect with the gospel all over again. Let, let me give you an, another verse. Uh, I love this one. This is Jesus speaking. It's very clear. He says, "Everyone whom my Father gives me will come to me, and I will." What's the next word? Oh, it's not up. <laughs> Did it break? Oh, there it is. Man, I'm so I'm going so fast they can't keep up with me up here, man. Okay. So Jesus says, everyone whom the Father gives me will come to me, and I will what? Never turn away anyone who comes to me. You know what you say to your friend who's off in a ditch? Oh, God can never forget. Steve, you have no idea what I've done. <laughs> no, I don't, but God does. And here's the promise of God himself, that if you come to him, he will never turn you away. Can you feel the power of the gospel? That's good news. That's good news. And it's, it's free for all of us. It's free for you. Let me read. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I want to close with this one illustration. Uh, how do I regain my assurance? I don't know where I first heard this, and I don't know how to, who to give it credit for because it was, it was quite a while ago. But they taught me this little uh, handy way to approach the kind of lack of assurance that Christians can have after they've known Christ vi vibrantly and then as they've been pulled away and maybe got off in a ditch by themselves. Uh, this person said, I want you to, to go drive a stake of decision that you're going to accept the love of God that you could never deserve and make sure that you drive a stake so you can go back to the memory of it at any time. And they said, do this, get a steak. And by the way, I've got some. And in a minute, I'm going to invite you. If you want to come down and take some home, you're welcome. You just write today's date, March 25th, 19, you know, 19, uh, 2018, <laughs> whatever it is. Some of us were born in the 1900s, so we're getting old, man. And you can put on the back, Clovis Hills Community Church is the place. But go out somewhere where if you drive it in the ground, your little kids won't break their neck tripping over it running across the lawn. So out around behind the between the fence and the, the garage, you know what I'm saying, and you drive the stake in the ground, and then do this. Get down on your knees, and you just pray this simple prayer. God, 
I don't know if I've ever prayed this before or not. Or you might start off this way. God, I think I prayed this before, but gosh, my life's so messed up now, I'm not sure what to think. But if I never did it before, then today, on this spot, on this date, I accept the love of God that I can't earn or deserve that comes through Jesus Christ to me. Forgive me of my wayward ways and my sins. Jesus, thank you that you died to pay the penalty for all my sins. Come into my life and make the changes in me that I want and that you want. Because on this day, I decide to come to you and you've promised you would never turn me away. So I'm standing on the promises of God. Now, here's what will happen. You'll sense some flicker, maybe even a lot more than a flicker, of assurance and love from God. But by tomorrow, because a lot of us are doubters, and if it depends on the level at which you've been messed up or how long you've been living messed up, you'll wake up tomorrow or the next day and you'll say, well, it's gone again. Uh, I think all that stuff that Pastor Steve told me is false. No, no, no. Recognize that this is important. The schemes of the devil are at work in your brain as you think that. So do this when the doubts come back. You say, devil, come here. Come here, Satan. And you walk the devil around to where the stake is. And then you tell him, devil, I don't know if I ever did it right before, but on this date, in this spot, I accepted the freely given love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I never did it before, I know I did it now. And you'll find the devil can't handle that kind of truth. You remember the Tom Cruise movie? You can't handle the truth. That's what you do to the devil. Because he can't handle the truth. When you base your assurance on what God says and that you did your part to invite Christ in, he can't handle it. And you'll find him just flitting away. And it may be three days or three weeks before he tries to sneak back in the back door. Schemes of the devil just keep going. You do the same thing. Once you catch yourself doubting again, come here, devil. You're walking right back to this stake. You say, I don't know if I ever did it before, but on this date, at this spot, I accepted the gospel of Christ freely given for all my sins. And you'll find that he just can't keep hanging around when you keep hitting him over the head with what God says. Now, if you've never done that, today would be a great day to do that. So I want to lead you in prayer. Would you bow with me?